It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Baldana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, it can feel awkward and a little heartless to talk about markets at times like this when innocent lives are being lost, families are being torn apart, and young people's futures are being destroyed by the violence in Ukraine. And we get that. So let's just start off with a heartfelt wish for peace. As Albert Einstein once said, peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. So we want to first try to understand what caused this war and what might bring it to an end and when. And then we'll get into what it means for markets. After all, with crude oil surging and the ruble crashing as the US and Europe leveraged the financial system as their best weapon to confront Vladimir Putin, markets and finance actually are an important element of this situation and maybe even the best hope to bring about peace. This week's guest is an expert on both geopolitics and markets, and he's going to help us make sense of this tragedy unfolding before our eyes. Yeah, I want to welcome Marco Popich. He's the chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group, and he's the author of the book Geopolitical Alpha. And Marco, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Vildana and Mike. It's, it's such a pleasure to be back. Uh, unfortunately, under these circumstances, but you know, it is the profession we chose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time, Marco. Uh, it's, it's a good week to have you. Um, and if anyone's curious about Marco's background and what his firm Clock Tower Group does, I, I would say you could go back to the podcast from February of last year. We got into uh, exactly what Clock Tower is all about and, and Marco's background. So today we just want to get right into it. And uh, Marco, I wanted to ask you about your last note. Now, I've got respect for a strategist uh, who admits they're wrong from time to time. And I noticed in your note, you know, you had assigned a very low probability of a full-blown invasion uh, of Russia. And I bring this up not to heckle you, but uh, because I think it's an important point. Um, because you're not heckle away. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the only one, though. A lot of people, uh, a lot of smart people, people that know this stuff the best, I think would have agreed with you. You know, the the sort of storyline from many experts was that Russia could be bluffing or they could only be uh, interested in those regions of, of the east of Ukraine that they are sort of already in control of. But I think it's important to sort of try to figure out what everyone got wrong uh, right now, especially because, you know, you, you hear all the pundits now talking about Vladimir Putin and, and wondering and saying he's not the guy we thought he was. He's not the guy he used to be. There, there's concerns about, uh, you know, whether he's mentally fit or, or even some kind of physical ailments. That's affecting his decisions. But I'm curious what your perspective is. What did everyone get wrong about thinking this was most likely a bluff? So I'll tell you what, what I got wrong. You know, uh, my framework is based on material constraints to policymakers. And I call it a framework on purpose, right? Because it's not a theory. It's not a method. It's a framework that allows investors to have some sort of a set of uh, probabilities, some ceteris paribus sense of where we are. What's the path of the least resistance, you know, uh, to policymaker action. And in, the, in this particular case, um, actually, what, what's interesting is that the set of constraints that I elucidated in my research is absolutely acting itself out. It's manifesting in reality as we speak. Uh, and it's manifesting itself in a couple of ways. Ukrainians are fighting really, really hard. It is an absolute like fallacy that there are pro-Russians at any spot of Ukraine left. They are in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. So Putin has already kind of you know annexed them. 
The second is the Russian military has not had any experience fighting real wars. Uh, and third is that Ukraine is a very logistically difficult place to invade. So those, those constraints are manifesting itself. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's still very, very valuable to be focused on the material reality. Because if policymaker you're trying to predict ignores the constraints you laid out and you were right in how you laid it out, then you can chart a path forward once they have surprised you with their decision making. Now, why did we all get it wrong? I think, um, I think what we misunderstood is two things. One, um, Putin's ROI on geopolitical events has been very high. He's been very, very cautious empirically. I can prove this with his previous actions. And the second, I think, is that it's not clear that we did get it wrong. And what I mean by that is that there is still an off-ramp where this becomes a Georgia 2008 scenario, where in that initial stage of the attack, it looks like a, a wide occupation and an attack against the entire country, but it's actually going to end up being much more limited, where he withdraws from a lot of the areas and focuses on what he wants. That's what happened in 2008 in Georgia. And so that's something that I would just add. Like, let's see how this play out especially as pain continues to be exerted on Russian military, Russian economy and politics. Marco, can I actually ask you uh, to start with a really basic question? And I've read a ton about this and I'm really interested in this and I'm struck by how many theories there are. But what is your theory for the why the invasion happened? Can you maybe lay out some of the factors, whether it's, you know, we've heard a lot about thwarting NATO or Putin's fear of being so close to a democratically elected country or et cetera, what is top of mind for you? You know, I think all of those are very good uh, theories. I mean, to me, uh, the fundamental issue here is that Russian policy over, over hundreds of years has been colored by deep paranoia of, of vulnerability. And it's really born out of history, which is bloody. Uh, many, many, many people and leaders have tried to conquer Russia and knock it out. And the second is a really vulnerable geographical position. And that's something that, you know, I'm not the only one that has mentioned that. But this is, this is imprinted on Russian psyche, especially if you come to rule Russia, you come to learn the lessons of its history, which is that leaders who took geographical insecurity of Russia uh, lightly are not remembered with glory. And so those that take it seriously, you know, they, they try to secure Russia. And, and the biggest problem right now for Russia is that when you look at its Western borders, the fact of the matter is that it's, it's vulnerable, it's exposed. And so Putin has tried to explain this to the West for a very long time. I do think the West didn't really listen to it seriously. And I think what you saw over the last 12 months, especially, is a ramping up in rhetoric, not so much from Paris and Berlin, but specifically from Washington, D.C., on Ukrainian membership in NATO. You know, and now, now listen, like, you know, I'm not here to tell you that this is like America's fault. I mean, Putin is crossing an international border. He didn't have to do that. But the rhetoric out of the U.S. has been much more stringent. There was also, uh, you know, the U.S. sent lethal weapon to Ukraine. And, you know, there was things that U.S. has said that were really interesting. For example, uh, territorial disputes between Ukraine and Russia do not preclude Ukraine's membership to, to NATO. That's something the White House said recently. And the truth is, like, of course it does. In fact, Croatia and Slovenia, like they had a dispute and Croatia wasn't allowed to get into NATO until it resolved that territorial dispute. It was a silly one in the, on the coast. But the point is that U.S. was just kind of writing checks. It doesn't have any intention of cashing. I think Putin called, you know, kind of America's bluff. And I th what, he, what I think he's doing, though, is I don't think that the Kremlin is trying to annex uh, Ukraine. We can talk about how ludicrous that would be. And this is where my point of material constraints really hits in. I think what he's trying to signal to Kiev in stark terms is how alone they really are and how no one's coming to save them. And that's something that Zelensky, President Zelensky, said at the very onset of the war. He said, we will offer neutrality. We now know the truth. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, look, no one's coming to save us. There is no NATO membership on offer. We do need to offer Russian neutrality. I think that's an off-ramp that Putin could take to actually declare victory, raise the mission accomplished banner, and move on. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Buble's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Marco, do you think the uh, the sanctions uh, that have been imposed, you know, it's a long list, obviously, the major banks, uh, almost all the major banks kicked off the SWIFT international bank messaging system, basically isolating Russia's financial system from the rest of the world. Um, the asset seizures, uh, the central bank assets being seized around the world, on and on and on, threats to the oligarchs, yachts and, and property around the world. Are these enough to influence Putin's behavior? And to, to sort of piggyback on that, I think there's a lot of speculation in the West that they possibly could be enough to, to trigger some sort of coup or some sort of overthrow of, of Putin as leader. How do you see all that playing out? Are, are the sanctions going to be enough to influence his behavior or even topple him? Hey, listen, I, I don't shy from making calls. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I couch them in probabilities, you know, yeah. and, and I always always uh, offer hedges to my positions, but I would say that I give Putin 12 months and I'm taking the under. When policymakers make extraordinarily bad decisions that ignore their material constraints, they get punished. And listen, I'm just a guy, okay? I mean, you know, me and Vildana were from the same region. We grew up with this kind of stuff, unfortunately. So I've been following this kind of stuff since I was 16 years old. So I have a lot of experience analyzing wars, not just professional. And I will say this to you. I'm just a guy sitting on Santa Monica Beach doing my research for investors. And I call the material constraints to Russia perfectly. So how the heck did Vladimir Putin not do the same? That is an egregious, egregious mistake by a policymaker. And I mean that objectively. I'm not even mentioning the civilian deaths and all that other stuff and the pariah status for Russia. Leave that aside. The 40-mile convoy? The 40-mile convoy, that's not a sign of Russian power. That's a sign of Russian weakness. They can't move that thing. That thing is more backed up than I-35 from Waco to Dallas. It might be less lethal, to, to be quite frank with you. I mean, I mean, if you are a country with a modicum of look-down capability for your Air Force, like if you have fighter jets that can shoot down, which is rare, but if you have them, right now the message you're getting from this conflict is you can defeat 250,000 Russians in, in a war, like Belgium can defeat Russia in a war right now. And so that's where, Mike, that's why I'm so um, you know, adamant that this, this mistake will be punished, not by like a coup, not by something, but it will be punished by the material reality. One thing that I would mention is, um, you know, speaking of the Balkan Wars, I mean, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, very similar mistakes that he made throughout the crises. And he kept, he, he kept coming to the negotiating table. 
the Dayton Accords are a good example of how you know that happened. Um, and obviously, domestically in Serbia, he had to declare victory uh, and say, "Oh, we got what we wanted." But the point is that don't confuse madness, temporary madness, with permanent, you know, um, lunacy. And so I do think that the constraints are going to act over the next couple of weeks. And at some point, I think there is an off-ramp. Now, am I sanguine on the markets? No. I do think that this conflict could be different than others. And I do think there's a considerable still downside risk. Mike mentioned uh, the slew of sanctions that the West has already announced against Russia. One thing I really haven't heard much about is what other sanctions or what else the West and allies can deploy against Russia? What else is left to do? Well, the SWIFT uh, sanctions have been uh, applied very tepidly, you know, because basically uh, the Germans, the Italians, a lot of the importers don't want to curtail their ability to transact with Russian financial entities due to the energy sanctions. So I think that, you know, a permanent expulsion of all financial institutions of Russia from SWIFT would be a game changer. Uh, so that's the first. The second is just an actual embargo on Russian exports of energy. I don't see that happening. But I worry that if it takes longer for uh, President Putin to realize his constraints, if it takes longer, it might be Russia that self-imposes action, its exports. You know, so you're talking palladium, 43% of global production. You're talking potash, Russia and Belarus together are 40%. There's force majeure. Uh, that Belarus put on its exports a couple of weeks ago because of sanctions. So uh, that's a really significant hit to already climbing uh, food prices. Uh, And then obviously things like aluminum, nickel, and so on. So I think that that's what I fear, Vildana, and I fear that that it mutates into a 1973 Yom Kippur war scenario. So, you know, if you look at my book, I have this fancy table of every every conflict since the Second World War. And like the message of that table is, ah, buy on the side of the cannons, empirically proven, you know? And I've seen that table like started, people are quoting me like, oh, you know, Marco Papi, she loves this, you know, like buy it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. The one war in that table that didn't, wasn't an opportunity to buy was 1973 Yom Kippur. And if you think about the macro context we're in today and then, it's kind of similar. You know, these are events that are basically inflationary cherries on top of like a Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's just we're in this very complicated macro environment. I was already bearish on U.S. Uh, assets and U.S. equities in particular since December. I'm not sure that I want to not buy because Russia and Ukraine are going to war. <laughs> right. Well, I think about that that notion of uh, uh, material and resource constraints, um, and it works both ways, obviously, too. If if uh, Putin were to turn the oil and gas off to Europe, um, I, I mean, I, who knows what Brent crude would do? I uh, Probably $200 a barrel, I would guess. We'd be looking at surging gasoline prices. So how do you do, do you view the constraints on the other side uh, if he were to do something like that? I mean, it, it, is that would it be enough to sort of cause uh, US and EU to back off a little bit, do you think? Well, I think it's already causing them to back off a little bit and create these off-ramps. Uh, and I think that you know it all depends on what it is that he, uh, the intention of President Putin is. Now, the, the problem is that, you know, my suspicion and maybe this is colored by my failure to predict a full invasion. But my suspicion is that he made this decision last minute. You know, and that's a worrying point because it also suggests that you know, there's like an element of irrationality. So if, if he's just looking to have a punitive war campaign against Ukraine, like in Georgia in 2008, and I keep referring to Georgia just to like remind listeners what happened in Georgia is that for five, six days, you didn't know if it was a full invasion or just a punitive campaign, where Russians then retreated to South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So my point about 2008 parallels is that we're still there. You know, Mike, like this could still be a Georgia type of scenario where it's a punitive campaign, punish Kiev for alerting with the West, and then withdrawing into the regions of Ukraine that Russia basically ostensibly already controls, the Netsklohansk and Crimea. And so my point is that a lot of the decision-making by the leadership in Russia suggests that they had a last-minute decision to flip this into a, some sort of a punitive campaign. If it just remains a punitive campaign, they withdraw, then you have a number of off-ramps. If it becomes a complete destruction of like Ukrainian civilian uh, infrastructure with the intention to occupy, first of all, I think Russia will break itself against Ukraine as a state. I mean, this is the end of Russia in that case as a, as, a, as a power, because it will be extremely expensive and costly 
to Moscow to, to exert this. I mean, U.S. struggle with Iraq. Iraq is smaller, less population than the U.S. had, more troops in. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that then I can see your scenario where we go all out and actually start embargoing uh, energy, you know, if this becomes a war of occupation. But to me, the probability of that still is very low. I still am not ready to skew probabilities more towards a full occupation. Um, I would say 80-20 in favor of the Georgia punitive campaign scenario. How about, uh, you know, there's obviously tons of speculation on the other weapons uh, in Putin's holster, uh, uh, cyber warfare, and God forbid, nuclear weapons. Um, any probabilities on, on him unleashing either of those? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that some people are talking about this seriously. I don't see what tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine accomplish. I also, uh, cybersecurity, you know, is a big deal. I know that cybersecurity stocks are doing great. And, blah, 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 and everyone's in the cybersecurity train. But listen, cybersecurity doesn't control airspace. Cybersecurity doesn't control ground troops. Like what this war is much more classical than people thought. This is a very, very much classical issue. So I think the cybersecurity issues just don't concern me too much. There might be, it might go back and forth. I'm not saying Russia doesn't attack the US and US attacks Russia, but this is about controlling ground. With, with men with guns and controlling uh, airspace above them. It's a much more of a classic uh, conflict than people thought would, would happen. So I, I think that's really important. I don't think Russia uses nuclear weapons. I don't see why it would. And in, and in fact, you know, uh, I think that the logic of destroying Ukraine further is, is also kind of weak. And in fact, the more they destroy Ukraine, the more likely it is that this is a punitive campaign because What's the point of occupying and holding a country you destroyed? What about what's going on within Russia itself? We had a Bloomberg story that said there's a lot of resignation among the population about the economic hardships that they're going to be facing. So what sense can you give us about what the sentiment is like within Russia itself? And how does that play a part in Putin's thinking? That's such a critical question, Vildana. I mean, that is, that is what we need to focus on. I think we as investors have to focus on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg. It's difficult to get good information, though. But what I would say to you is, is this. Every authoritarian regime has a social contract. Uh, we don't live in medieval times where you can just like kill scores of people. An authoritarian regime like Russia does not do that. I mean, sure, they repress the public, but it's not like they have, they're running gulags. They're not. So what is the social contract that allows Vladimir Putin to retain power with a median Russian accepting that, that rule. What's the trade-off? It's not the same as Chinese Communist Party. See, Chinese Communist Party's social contract with the citizens is, is simple. We will deliver the Chinese dream to you. You don't ask us for a vote. And that's worked. And they've done it. They've delivered the Chinese dream. In the case of Russia, it's not about economic progress. 1990s were a terrible time for Russia. I mean, you had mafia running the streets of major cities. You had PhDs in physics, you know, living in dumpsters. You had complete chaos, complete collapse of economy and currency. And so the social contract in Russia is very simple. Russian public expects its leaders to provide stability, not necessarily economic growth and potential, but stability, like, you know, like get Russia off of its economic knees and its geopolitical knees that it was at, especially in 1999 when NATO bombed one of its allies in Serbia. Putin has, for the most part, delivered on that stability. And the problem right now, Vildana, is he's breaking the social contract. And he's breaking the social contract for unclear purposes. And this is why, by the way, a lot of Russian watchers didn't expect a full invasion. You know, we expected some sort of a limited incursion because domestically there was no prep. There was no prep. The media in Russia did not talk about, like, ethnic cleansing of Russians or this or that. They were making fun of Biden for being hysterical, right? That was the narrative. They did not at all. Putin pulled the rug under his military, his propagandist, his, his central bank that didn't prepare for this, his diplomats who gave Chinese diplomats all sorts of stories that they didn't deliver. This was so sudden and surprising that the collapse of stability in Russia relative to the gains for the Russian state from doing this in Ukraine is such a skewed ratio that there will be serious consequences for the political hold of power of Vladimir Putin. And again, I can't, I can't just stop comparing it. Maybe, you know, I'm from Belgrade, but I can't stop comparing it to Slobodan Milosevic. Like 1999, 
a NATO bombing of, of Belgrade, you know, for, for like a minute, it unified Serbs against the West. And then six months later, he was in trouble. I mean, in deep, deep serious trouble. And finally, the country revolted. And one thing I will say is like Russians will not be cowed. This is a country with a deep history, deep history of failing in military aggressive tactics. We all as in the West, we think Russia is a, has, a, has, has an incredible military history. It does if you attack it. But when they're on offense, they lose more than they win. And when they lose, there is a revolt. There is a revolution. There is a coup d'etat. And it's shocking to me that someone as steeped in history as Vladimir Putin just forgot that. I still think of Milosevic, of, of all that being not too long ago, but I guess as, as I get older, it's, it's, it's longer than I realize. But, um, you know, and you look at that, Bosnia, Serbia recovered from that, maybe not thriving so much, but doing pretty well, you know, as nations these days. Is there a chance for that in a sort of po post-Putin Russia or is... is Russia uninvestable, unapproachable, untouchable for the rest of the world, say, for the rest of our lifetime, do you think? Well, I, I would say that it's difficult for us to like, kind of make a call now on something that hasn't happened. You know? So as a caveat, yeah, yeah. but I'm about to answer your yeah. question. Don't worry, Mike. Like, I, mean, like, I haven't heard a question I don't answer. Uh, I will say, <laughs> That's why we love you on this yeah, show, no, listen, Marco. Listen, I, of course it is investable. Of course, of course Russia is investable. And I'll tell you why. Like, if you look at the performance of Russian equities relative to EM, it really uh, hit bottom in 2011. Uh, and that was pre-elections pre when Medvedev and Putin had this very callous, very arrogant press conference where they basically said they were going to switch roles. And everyone was like, you know, a lot of like internationalist investor Davos men type of people were hoping that Medvedev and Kudrin, you know, Kudrin is like the, the poster child of everyone who wants to invest in Russia, that they would take over, that Putin would just kind of like be there and in 2011, everybody realized that wasn't the case. And Russian uh, assets have never actually uh, recovered since then, since that press conference, <laughs> actually, that they had together on this weird stage. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, I mean, if you have some sort of a, a change in tact in the relationship with the West, of course, I th do think that there will be a potential to invest in Russia. The problem is that from here to there, you know, we could have appropriations. So should you buy Russian equities now? Given this kind of hope that there is some sort of a you know change in in leadership or Putin's retirement, like Khrushchev got retired after he messed up the Cuban Missile Crisis, like I don't think so. I mean, it's this is a very volatile situation. I would actually propose a different view. I actually think that what's happening in Ukraine is extremely obviously terrifying, but also heartening. We're do, we're watching something we haven't seen in a long time. We're watching a birth of a new national identity. You know, and, and Ukraine's biggest challenge has been that post-Soviet uh, Union collapse, its leaders have been corrupt, they've been incompetent, and not just pro-Russian. Let's just be very clear here. Like, the pro-West ones were sometimes most corrupt, most incompetent. The Orgist Revolution gave us some really, really nasty characters that didn't go anywhere. So the point is that what we're seeing now in Ukraine, though, is a, a birth of a, a truly, like, self-aware nation. And I think that that might be actually a very interesting investment opportunity over the next um, over the next decade, you know, provided that, you know, they they fight off this attack and have some independence uh, going forward. It's a large country. It is in Europe um, and a lot of potential exists in that country. We've heard from Biden and also from EU officials about how we are all going to have to face the some of the burdens that come with higher gas prices and some of the other reverberations that we're going to be seeing in the weeks and months to come. So what can you tell us about how this might impact growth here in the U.S. and, and, and abroad as well, in Europe as well? You know, Vilana, that's, that's the number one question with the folks that I talk on a daily basis, whether they're institutional investors like large pension funds and pools of capital or, or hedge funds. And there's a range of outlooks out there. I mean, I'll give you mine. My view is that I worry about the Yom Kippur scenario. As I said, again, you know, that's, that's a nightmare scenario. We get into a stagflation review. And, and by the way, think about why this is so difficult. Like if the Fed just says, look, we're going to deal with inflation, we get a recession. Okay. If the Fed says like, eh, it's caused by Putin, so we're not going to, we're going to step back. Like, okay. What does that do to asset prices? Well, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that's positive for asset prices either. Inflation is basically unanchored. And central banks lose credibility. 
the European Central Bank really has only one mandate, and they are now backing off from that mandate. What does that do to the bond market? What does that do to equities? I, I don't know. I just know that I like commodities in that world. But in terms of the actual impact, there are differentiated impacts. I mean, obviously, Europe is going to be far more affected by what's going on in Ukraine than the U.S. U.S. has a couple of things going for it. So uh, my dear friend, uh, Jordi Visser, he has great webinars. I don't know if you guys watch them. Really worth watching. He has made the point that net worth in the U.S. is so high right now because of the stimulus checks. If you plot oil prices relative to net worth, it's, they're like the lowest they've ever been. So Americans do have the ability to incur higher costs. And then on top of that, you have something else that's interesting. And that's something else is that we just went through two years of working from home. Our ways of life and work have altered. And it's not clear to me that an increase in oil prices would necessarily impact the American economy as it has in the past. So the whole like, idea that like, a 10% increase in oil prices impacts the GDP at a certain percent, like we should throw all of that out the window. We don't know. In the U.S., the impact will be much, much lower, which also explains geopolitical position of the U.S. That's why Macron is going to, to Moscow. That's why Germany is hold, holding back SWIFT sanctions, because the impact to Europe is much higher. U.S. has much, much lower risk tolerance, whereas the U.S. doesn't care effectively. U.S. can be much more Machiavellian, much more meaner to Russia and supportive of Ukraine because the uh, macroeconomic imp implications are lower. Plus, you know, hey, if inflation goes up and the Fed can't fight it, Biden has an excuse now. It's not automobile prices that are driving CPI higher. It's Vladimir Putin. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts You know, Mark, I wanted to, you mentioned commodities. I wanted to drill in a little bit on uh, wheat in particular. Um, you know, you made a, a interesting point in one of your recent notes that wheat has actually outperformed crude oil during all of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm an older guy. I remember living through the gas shortages in the U.S. Uh, when you had to wait two hours to get uh, fill your, your tank with gas and, and maybe you couldn't get it and you canceled a trip or something. But a shortage of wheat is a, is a much more serious scenario, I think. How are you thinking about wheat? I mean, wheat, the, you know, obviously spring's coming up. Ukraine is a big producer of wheat exports to both Europe and Russia. And I'm curious how you're thinking of it, A, from a 
sort of a shortage standpoint, you know, uh, is there a risk of a, a shortage in, in Europe or is there enough producers worldwide to sort of, you know, plant some extra acres and, and pick up the slack? But also as an investment, you know, I, I think you sort of advised it as a hedge uh, in this situation. It seems to me like possibly a risky investment if there are shortages, if there is a sort of government backlash to that and potential price caps, that that sort of thing. Is is that a possibility, do you think? I know I asked you about 10 questions there, but. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it is risky. If it goes too high, there, there could be all sorts of things. I mean, I think there's other ways to play this. Uh, bulk carriers, there's like shipping implications for any time there's a dislocation that we could play as well. I think we were headed towards a food crisis anyways. This is a really big geopolitical issue. I've been talking about this for 12 months before Ukraine-Russia became an issue. And that's because, you know, natural gas prices went up, uh, cost of nitrates and fertilizer went up. On top of that, you have this potash situation in Belarus, which happened because of U.S. sanctions. Now you've got what's going on here. So fertilizer costs are going through the roof and you have actual potential curtailment of shipping and supply because Ukrainians, if this continues, they might not be able to harvest the wheat. You know, who knows what happens? And, and so, you know, if you look around the world, you see Brazil or India, and they're kind of being very careful in how they uh, react to this crisis. I think one of the reasons is because of this. They, they want to make sure that Russia prioritizes, especially India, fertilizer exports to India. Um, so, you know, Modi's is playing a very important geopolitical game here. He can't just, you know, do what America wants. And, and that's because countries like India, North Africa, uh, obviously all of Africa, also some in Latin America, their uh, food share of the CPI is much higher than it is in the U.S. and Europe. And those are going to be the countries that suffer this. U.S., Europe, they're going to be fine. They produce enough food. They don't really need uh, exports from Russia and Ukraine. It's really other countries. And another one that I didn't mention is China. I'm speculating, but, you know, again, I'm just going to give you my irrationally confident hyperbolic view. And it's that, look, I guarantee Putin didn't tell Xi what's going on. That the, the, uh, meetings at the Olympics weren't uh, setting the table? Well, look, I mean, like the endless friendship or whatever it was, <laughs> the bottomless pit of love that they kind of... First of all, I, I get so many emails from investors like, Marco, this is a sign. I'm like, of what? Like, give me a clause in this deal, in this treaty. Unless there's some secret annex I don't know about, like in the First World War. Like, this was just like a love fest. Got it. We love each other. We hate NATO. Got it. Okay. God bless you. That's the world. But here's the problem with that. China does import food. Food prices are going to matter, one. Two, China's pushing on a string domestically. Look at the January TSF numbers, you know, total social financing. They barely got it up, and they only got it up because in the last week of January, they went uh, all old-school stimulus with SOE and LGFEs. Like, the private sector in China can no longer be leveraged up. Household debt is percent of disposable income in China is higher than in the U.S. So China's staring at, like, another global recession, and we've got political risks at home higher food prices, higher energy prices. And on top of that, you didn't tell us ahead of time so that we can extract our citizens from Ukraine. You know, I mean, you, you remember at the beginning of this crisis when the, the Chinese were saying, put little Chinese flags on, on, on cars so people can identify you as Chinese, which, by the way, I'm not sure that's a good thing if Ukrainians think that you were on the Russian side. But like, let's leave that aside. The point here is that I think that the Putin did not tell Chinese what's going on. And I think that they are, uh, the Chinese economy other than Russia, might be might have the most to lose in this situation. I wonder what you make of the argument that we are in a stagflationary environment or headed towards one because of all of the rising prices. And I've I've seen a ton of notes come into my inbox over the past week arguing that potentially we could be headed for a stagflationary environment. And some people saying we're already in one. It's already here. Yeah, I was going to write one of those notes too, probably. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's the Yom Kippur example, right? I mean, that's the view of some of the very large asset managers out there in the world. Uh, oil prices go up to 150 and we have a recession. Every recession has been preceded by doubling in oil prices. Uh, you know, something that we kind of forget, not just the yield curve inversion, but also doubling of oil prices. I think the risk is there, but the risk of positioning yourself for a recession is also enormous, you know, because what do you do then? You buy 10-year yields? I mean, you, you buy 10-year bonds, you buy, you go into cash. What happens if this is a Georgia scenario? What happens if this is a very short term? Like, and by the way, short term, like a month-long conflict, terrifying, 
lots of human destruction, lots of pain, but then an off-ramp. And in that situation, with the amount of household net worth that is, is built up in the U.S., I'm not sure that you necessarily want to be positioned as if your asset allocation is expecting a recession. You know, so that's why you, I, would be, I would stay very light on my feet right now. I like commodities. I think they're the new risk parity. I like to play both stagflation or just more inflation through a commodity paradigm. But I don't want to make any other decisions in terms of asset allocation right now. I just want to see whether we are in that 2008 Georgia scenario or if we're in some new world where, you know, this lasts a very long time and then you have all these other consequences that are negative. Marco, uh, you know, Clock Tower has a lot of interactions with hedge funds, obviously, uh, sort of the whole purpose of, of the firm. I'm curious if you're have a sense of what sort of the, the hedge fund community is doing. I mean, someone's buying this dip in equities this week, but to me, I almost feel like uh, hedge funds can kind of turn into day traders in a situation like this sort of. Which is good. Yeah. But Mike, that's, that's what you have to do. And that's my point. You cannot make global asset allocation decisions right now. You've got to be a trader. You know, and, I, and I've seen this. I've seen real talent in the macro community emerge out of the COVID. Uh, crisis. And, and we truly believe we've seeded some of those guys. We think they're awesome. And we think that this environment, this very volatile, multipolar world where we will have events like this require active hedge fund macro guys to, to do the day trading when this stuff starts happening. But what I will say is that I do think that overall, overall, the macro community was basically buying tech, shorting energy still. Like, I don't think, like, I don't think enough in, in investors in the macro sense uh, were ready to give up on like U.S. tech story. Uh, and I think that's a mistake because, listen, January sell-off had zero to do with Russia, Ukraine. Zero. You know, when you see like Latin American FX outperform, it's not because people are worried about like emerging market war. What January was about was a serious rotation. Now, Ukraine, Russia could be the delta. The Delta strain. And what I mean by that is 2021, in 2021 in March, from November 2020 to March 2021, we had this beautiful rotation into basically the reflation trade. And then what happens? Delta shows up, China starts doing austerity, the 10-year yield starts going down, tech outperforms the rest uh, for another like six to eight months. Ukraine, Russia could play the same role if we settle into some sort of a low-intensity conflict where that still keeps safe haven bids up there. The tenure could like rally significantly enough to give tech another six months of use. But I, I fear that this is much more of a binary outcome. Either we have an off-ramp and Putin realizes the constraints, and then the tenure re resumes its sell-off and tech gets killed. Or this is like near World War III, and then why the heck are you in equities anyways? So I don't really see a way in which like NASDAQ continues to outperform. I think that's a head fake, and I wouldn't be following that that kind of an investment recommendation. Tighten up your straight jackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, Voltana, um, even in these trying uncertain times, I think we need to stick with our tradition of the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. I want you to kick it off. What's the craziest thing you saw? One of the wildest things was a story from our friend Katie Greifeld, actually. And as you know, the Russian stock market has been closed this week. But there was one way for investors to see how Russia-centric stocks were faring and, and how they might trade when things open back up. And that's through ETFs. So on Monday, there was a Vanek fund that fell 30% and an iShares fund that fell 27%. And those losses have just been staggering, obviously, but it is just one way to see how things might play out once the Russian stock market reopens. But to me, the craziest part is they, they both saw a lot of inflows, I believe, didn't they? They did, but I think it was for the creation redemption process. Oh, so, so right? people can short it? I don't know. It could be. Yeah, I think, but not, not because people were bullish. I mean, potentially. I think there, there, there have been some stories where retail traders are really interested in some of these. I saw Eric Belchunas tweeting about RSUX, one of the funds, seeing a lot of interest on the TD Ameritrade website and seeing many more yeah. buy orders than sell yeah. orders. But and uh, yeah. the the Reddit crowd is all in on they want to buy these Ukrainian war bonds. They uh, that, I saw that story too. I yeah. guess. How about you, Marco? Are you see anything crazy this week? 
I mean, there's so many things. I mean, yesterday's ECB uh, verbiage and the carnage it did in the bond markets in Europe, the crazy moves in the bond market to me has been the sort of most like just nutty. You know, it's such a macro variable that's moving so vol uh, with such volatility. But I'm actually going to give you something that's a little less market. It's more like geopolitical. I think the craziest thing that I've seen were those lineups in uh, Russian McDonald's to access the ATMs, ATM machines. Because, you know, 20 years ago, like, well, no, more. When I was like eight years old, you know, I stood in those lineups in communist Yugoslavia to get my taste of American originality, of American cool. And, and it wasn't for the quality of the food. Like, you know, Phil Donna knows what's up. Like, we got better food in the Balkans than a Big Mac. But you, you, you wanted that Big Mac for a different reason. And again, I go back to the point of why Vladimir Putin has been popular in Russia. You know, it's not because he beats people over the head with the police. It's because he's delivered stability. And the fact that now, 20 years later, you go from waiting in a line to, to get a taste of a Big Mac, to waiting in a line to withdraw cash, that is going to imprint on the Russian psyche a particular set of memories that are going to piss people off. Absolutely. I think Voldano only eats the Impossible Burger Whopper these days. Is that right? Voldano? I wouldn't even eat that one. You wouldn't even eat no, that? No, I, I would eat, like, is there a cauliflower burger? You need, you need a, a, a cauliflower. That's what I would need, yeah. Pack. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> listen, listen, all that stuff is not that good for yeah, you, by yeah, the way. I mean, I... Yeah. <laughs> all right, great stuff. I'll give you mine quickly here because we're, we've gone on a long time, but... um. The fact that Ukraine is soliciting donations to its cause via the cryptocurrency market kind of blows my mind. They're accepting Bitcoin and Ethereum. Someone sent them, uh, on Twitter at least, they claim to send them, I think, a few million dollars worth of Polkadot, the, the crypto. And uh, there are people saying, can't you send us mint some NFTs in response as if like NFTs are the new war bonds? I find it crazy, but also, Marco, you know, this whole week has brought up a lot of discussions about the, the role of the dollar internationally, the potential role of crypto in either, you know, Russians dodging sanctions or donating to Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of people believe that this was a, a, a watershed event as far as the financial world order and that. Perhaps this is something that knocks the dollar off its its pedestal as as sort of the the, the global reserve currency and you know the the only currency we transact commodity commodities in most commodities anyway. I'm curious, what do you think about that? Is there a risk to the dollar from all these sanctions? I think philosophically, I'm totally with you. Uh, I, is crypto going to replace it? I don't think so, but I, I definitely think in emerging markets, you know, one of the reasons I took crypto seriously is because of emerging markets. When I saw like the Brazilians were starting to use Bitcoin, you know, this is when I realized like, wait, this is serious stuff. So I agree with you, but I would actually take your question a different direction if I may, just really quickly. I think, I think what's interesting also about this war is that there is a generational component to it. And what I mean by that is that fundamentally, like Vladimir Putin is basically pursuing like boomer foreign policy. The interesting issue is that the metaverse, broadly defined, is making it very difficult for a nation state to promote a nation state propaganda because people have access to all sorts of channels. Now, people are kind of riding on TikTok because there's a lot of like fake stuff going on on TikTok right now. And that's fine. But the point is that you can access different viewpoints. And a lot of people in Russia are. Same with Ukraine. And that's, I think, creating a really interesting dynamic that none of us are really talking about right now, but I think it's going to be increasingly more and more difficult to create a narrative of irredentism, of nationalism, of revanchism, just like purely from top down, like what happened in my country, for example, with Slobodan Milosevic controlling the media and basically telling everyone like, oh, we need to go and defend, you know, this, this and that. And then everyone's like, yay, let's do that. And then it takes a decade of destruction of the economy and politics of the country for people to finally revolt. Now, it's kind of more, it's easier. It's easier to just show your grandma, like, hey, grandma, maybe you should look at this TikTok video to see what's going on. Like, look at this child in Ukraine dying. And that's, that's where I think that crypto, metaverse, Web3, Starlink, all this stuff is having a really interesting and I think potentially extremely positive and humane evolution 
in, in today's world. I wish this stuff existed in the 90s when my country fell. Well, it's the simple fact that everyone has a, a high definition video camera in their pocket right now. You know, I always think back to the the nightmares when I was a kid, the Orwellian, you know, 1984 scenario where we thought the state would be spying on us uh, constantly. And, and it seems like the, the reverse is being true that, you know, the, the people are holding the the powers to be accountable with with the simple uh, smartphone. Yeah. And I think the Internet in space is a big deal. It's a very, very big deal, because if you can continue to project information through pipelines that exist in the air, like that's game over for many countries in the world that repress information from their from their public. I, I do wonder if uh, Putin's going to have something to say to Elon Musk someday for sending his, his uh, startling satellites over Ukraine. I, don't I saw Elon tweet about that. And listen, those things are the size of a grapefruit. So good luck trying to knock them out of the sky <laughs> with a missile. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. Marco, uh, really fascinating conversation. We appreciate your time so much uh, and uh, hope we can bring you back again to, uh, to get your download uh, in the future. Anytime, guys. Yeah, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it, Vildana and Mike. Uh, it's an honor to be on. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.